Good evening. Let, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you heartfelt thanks for the truth of your word. Bury it deep within us so that our hearts burn with the truth of your message. Amen. Amen. Tonight's reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, which you'll find on pages 1191 of your church Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. This is the word of the Lord. Pira, thank you for that very clear reading. Excellent to um, have it so clearly read. Um, let's pray before we start this passage. Uh, Lord God, I pray that you would um, encourage us now, Lord, to know what it is uh, to be your people. Uh, and Lord, to know what you've saved us for in part. Uh, embolden us, Lord, I pray, to hold out a gospel of love which is like no other, a gospel of grace, which is for all of us here who fall into all those things that aren't right in that list. Uh, bless us with your grace now, I pray, uh, to live according to your ways. Amen. So we are starting a new series in uh, 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy, there's a nice summary statement. It's always lovely when the author tells you why he writes. So if you turn over the page, you'll see that on verse 14 and 15. Paul is writing, as we read to his true son in the Lord, uh, uh, Timothy. Um, and he writes there, verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3. Are you with me on that one? He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you with these instructions. I'm writing this letter so that... If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is 
the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So this letter is about how we relate to one another as the church, as the family of God, the rights and the wrongs, the do's and the don'ts. And if you're someone here tonight, you're not quite sure that's you yet, and this hopefully will be informative for you, you'll be able to see, and you know, do these people here, do they do these things? Now you can challenge us on it and see why it's so important, I hope. Um, but what is the church? It's simply a gathering of people. Uh, they belong to the living God. Uh, they do not belong to any person. Um, and uh, not a dead God, but an active God we've got there, haven't we? Uh, and what, is, what also is the church here is we're described as the pillar and foundation of truth. That is the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Uh, We get that before and immediately after this statement. Uh, There is therefore truth and there is also falsehood about Jesus. And the function of Christians gathered together is to act as the pillar and foundation of that truth. The function of the church is to guard that truth, being a foundation for others to stand on. And uh, also the means of upholding the truth. That's what a pillar does, doesn't it? Without the church fulfilling this function in the power of the Spirit, then the truth about the gospel of Christ would sink out of sight and be lost or topple over and be useless. And hence this series is called Good News Guardians because the gathered people of God are the guardians of this extraordinary good news that we have in Jesus. It's particularly helpful to to us to see that, yet again, Paul's burden when he writes to a church or to people is that its leaders and that its uh, members would fight for the truth of the gospel and stand firm on that. Uh, And that is, as preserved in the apostolic word, that's Paul as someone who met the risen Lord Jesus and was commissioned uh, by him to go and tell the good news to the nations. That's what apost- apostolic means. And that's what we have here. That's where we find the truth, and that's where we're the guardians of that truth. So we are, gather- we are a gathering or church that inhabits a culture and also a denomination as well that is just like all churches, denominations and cultures down the ages from Timothy's time to us. The one uniting factor for all those church families over history is that all those churches or denominations experience the pull like the tide to alter the truth of the gospel and to leave the apostolic message of the gospel. We feel the pull to be drawn off the solid rock of truth that is the Bible. And what Timothy's burden here is, is don't be pulled out to sea but be good news guardians together in the power of the Spirit. That's what I hope we're going to see tonight. Uh, We're good news guardians, and the first thing we're going to see here tonight is that actually Paul uh, demands that Christians be intolerant. don't know what your image is of Christians, but hopefully it is one of being very tolerant. But actually Paul here demands, he commands that we as Christians are intolerant. Of course, Christians should be the most tolerant people of all when it comes to our relationships with one another. 
with those on the outside of the church, even with other religions. That's another thing that separates Christianity from lots of other religions in the world, like atheism or Islam or Hinduism, to name a few. We should be like Jesus, shouldn't we? In that we are most tolerant, like he is, of sinners, of enemies, of God, of any person. But there is one area that Jesus was most intolerant. And that is of false teaching about his father, about him, and about the Holy Spirit, and about his gospel plans to redeem humanity. And it's to be the same for us. Here Paul is commanding us to be intolerant of false teaching. Let me show you that in this passage. So we start with Paul's greeting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord to you. So note that he starts with his apostolic authority. That is, here's are the words of someone who has met the risen Jesus face to face and was commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel with supernatural wisdom and insight, the words of God themselves. That goes to the status of these words that we read in front of us. They are not words about God. They are God's words delivered by this special apostolic ministry. They are different words from the words that I have for you tonight or that any other human being might have for you about God. And that's crucial because it goes to how we respond to these words. Do we respond in eager obedience or grudgingly or pick and choose what we like? It should be eager obedience, shouldn't it? It's nice, isn't it, that Timothy here is described as my true son. It reminds us that these words are to be read and received in the context of love, affection, and concern. These are not the harsh words or orders of a disinterested, distant, exploitive authority, but as a father to a son, not a missive from the tax office, but a father to a son with loving authority to be listened to. And what's his wish? His wish there at the beginning is that Timothy and us as readers would receive the undeserved favour of God. That's what grace is. And that we would experience that inner peace, that shalom of, being, of knowing God as our loving father and following Jesus as Lord. That's what's in that previous bit, isn't it? Uh, and Lord, that we would know his mercy, his forgiveness for when we get things wrong. You know, we might find ourselves in that list in verses 9 downwards. He wants us not to be burdened by that, but to know God's mercy in that, if that's us. To know the delights. So what we're about to hear has the aim not to spoil our fun, but to possess more deeply those delights of faith in Jesus. And so where does Paul start? So that we might, uh, that Timothy and the church family, Timothy is overseeing, and we ourselves, so that we might possess that more. Well, he starts in verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people 
not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. As I urged you, this is a command that's so important that actually repeating what was obviously said in person ages ago is worth repeating it. That's how important it is and worth repeating it in words. And what is that command? Stay there in Ephesus, with what reason? So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines or to devote themselves to myths. So it's a command here. And you see how it sort of picks up the command of, of Christ Jesus to the Apostle Paul to go and preach. And actually Paul is passing on a command now to Timothy and to us a command with the purpose of silencing false teaching and a forbidding expending personal time and resource on what does not advance God's work. That's the reason Timothy is there. It's his priority. So that you may command certain people. It's nice that, isn't it? The people are known. Their teaching is known. These certain people. There is more than one. And they've been, what they've been doing has obviously been going on for some time. It's persistent. And he says, command them not to teach false doctrines any longer. He's not chiefly concerned with the teaching style or the methods, but the content, the conclusions, the assertions. These might be lovely people, probably with great charisma and a gift at speaking, on maybe a well-produced, exciting platform with lights and darkness and who knows what. But the content is the problem. It is possible to teach false doctrine, what we're picking up here, isn't it? And true doctrine. The presence of falsehood reminds us that there is one truth. Not many, not the truth as I perceive it, but true doctrine and false doctrine and the content of what people teach is the key here. False teaching that is patently wrong, but more dangerous is false teaching. And I'll tell you, the most dangerous type of false teaching, I don't know if you're aware of this, is the kind of teaching that contains truth, but not all the truth, or something extra to the truth. That has been the most damaging teaching down the ages of the church. That is still false teaching. If it has a grain of truth in it, it still can be false. And in fact, often if it's got a grain of truth in it, that makes it even more dangerous. False teaching is that, you know, you might want to leave out sin or leave out judgment or leave out hell. If I want to know whether someone really teaches the gospel, the first thing I do on their website is I go to what they believe about heaven and hell. What do they teach about sin? Because if, they will, if they'll teach that clearly, they'll be clear on everything else, probably. So if they, not to teach false doctrine anymore, that must be silenced, but also not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Myths, they're made-up stories, uh, probably here, about Jesus. We're, we're very close to when Jesus was alive, and you've got an apostolic ministry of Paul who met Jesus face-to-face, -face, and these guys might not have done. And so maybe they're coming up with stories about Jesus. 
um, that don't come with this apostolic seal and guarantee that Paul has underscored in verse 1. Uh, and that gives you, uh, doesn't it, if you've got, a, you've got a special story about Jesus, that gives you, doesn't it, uh, access to special insight about Jesus. And that increases your status and your worth, doesn't it? And the endless or vain genealogies may be showing ownership of Jesus as part of a certain tribe that I'm a member of, or maybe in my bloodline. Again, probably to possess some kind of spiritual distinction or piety. And out of this privileged piety, they are able to teach their own doctrine, their own teaching about Jesus, which is false. So beware people who go out of their way to look super spiritual or super gifted and who propose some new teaching that's not heard of or is contrary to this apostolic teaching in the Bible, be they a bishop enjoying their flowing robes or be they a charismatic person enjoying their spiritual experience or be they a conservative evangelical person who unpacks the word beautifully? Beware. What's the problem with this false teaching? Well, we read here, the problem with it is, is such things, in the end of verse 4, promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So the reason for the command is to prevent internal controversy. That's division, isn't it? And disunity. It is not unity which Jesus treasures and died for. It is not the harmony and the peace that Paul wishes for us in the opening verses, that sense of shalom. The aim of it is to prevent these speculations. That means people are, if you're speculating about stuff, you're no longer sure, are you? There's no longer certainty about what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what isn't. Speculations are not a good thing because we end up lacking assurance about what is true and what is not. So there are no good, these things, internal controversy and speculations. And they, most of all, they are obviously undermining God's work, which is by faith. Literally, uh, this little phrase is kind of God's household way of living which happens by faith. It seems to be directing us to reducing godliness. People are less likely to live for God's glory. They order church for God's, less likely to order church for God's glory, less likely to show the beauty of the gospel to one another in the world. It doesn't make God's gathering more glorious. That's the problem. False teaching and controversies are discredited here because they reduce those kingdom aims and gains. By contrast, true doctrine promotes all those things, which is by faith. It sees lives of radical godliness, gatherings of radical love, a people united in displaying a radical gospel of Christ Jesus. For that's what Paul contrasts true teaching with in verse 5, isn't it? Can you see verse 5? The goal of this command to silence false teaching, notice it's a command again, the goal of this command is love, which comes from pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now look, when you're doing the Bible, love is not love. There are several different Greek words for love. And it's very important to get which one you've got right, otherwise you'll be in trouble. This one here is agape. That is the sacrificial love 
of other uh, and of Christ. It's exactly how Jesus loved us. It's the word that's used to describe God's love of his people. It's probably used here in the sense of surmising what it means to be a Christian. A life of sacrificial love towards God and towards man that works itself out in lives becoming more holy and having more and more deeds of sacrificial service. That is the goal of silencing false teaching. That we would love more like Jesus and we would love more of Jesus. The result of false doctrine and controversies is to undermine that love. That's so true, isn't it? If I don't teach you about hell and your sin, then what is the point of Jesus dying? If, if I don't teach that Jesus, as the Bible says, takes the wrath of God, all of the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin and I deserve for all eternity, then how great does his sacrifice look? It looks like a waste, doesn't it? Whereas we see how little we deserve and how holy our God is, we see how great his love is. And so that false teaching halves the love of God, doesn't it? Look, to stand by and tolerate false teaching and controversies is not loving, nor does it promote Christian love. What promotes the greatest love ever is calling out and silencing false teaching. So to those, if you're like me, who are too embarrassed uh, you know, to silence false teaching, it's a challenge to us to take up our cross and love others by putting yourself in an uncomfortable position and saying, uh, where would you go in the Bible for that? To those of you who are quick to correct and rebuke and who love being right, the challenge is to do that in a loving way. It would be odd, wouldn't it, if the goal is love and you did it in an unloving way, because the goal of silencing false teaching is not to be right, nor is it to be better or to look good. It is to promote the love of Christ. Don't undermine that in the way that you silence false teaching. We're going to skip on. I want to just verse six says, uh, "Listen, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk." I just want to note to you, um, they've departed from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Now, listen, all those things are very hard to see, aren't they? Can you see someone's pure heart? Can you see their sincere faith? You can't see it, can you? And so I think it's worth noticing that as sinners, we know that we are experts at covering up. And it's a comfort to know that even in its first generation, the church contained people who talked the talk and looked spot on, but they had left these three things, the pure heart, uh, the, uh, the good conscience, and the sincere faith. They've left that in order to teach false doctrines. And so there's no surprise when we encounter here in our own church family, in our own church pulpit, when we encounter in our own denomination people whose hearts are not in tune with the love of God when they speak of false doctrines, when they speak instead of what is meaningless or vain and empty. Here's why we do it, verse 7. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. 
expert false teachers and those who distract with controversy, they want to teach the Bible. False teachers who don't want the word, that's no problem, isn't it? We can get that. But what's worrying here is actually we're talking about teachers of the law, people who know God's word and teach God's word, but they teach it incorrectly. It's no surprise that there are false teachers of the Bible, people who use the Bible to promote controversy instead of harmony, distraction instead of devotion to Christ. And note, they will do so with confidence and affirm what they're saying. Did you get that? What they so confidently affirm? But a marker is, actually, do they know what they're talking about? We've got a way We've got to weigh what they're saying, not against our own understanding, but against scripture itself. Without that objective truth, we would be all at sea, with everyone going in any direction, with anyone making up anything they like about Jesus. But the Bible is the rail tracks beneath our wheels. And so we ask ourselves, how well does this teaching or this argument sit on the rail tracks? Or does it, in fact, ignore the tracks of the Bible in favor of the ditch next to it? Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. The problem here is not the law. The problem is not the word of God. It's not God's commands. The problem is that it is used improperly by humans. Contrary to liberal theology, there is a right way and a wrong way to use the law. Just like there is a right way and a wrong way to take medicine, or a right way and a wrong way to use a chainsaw. So we work at allowing scripture to guide us in its proper use. Not what the world says or the latest theologian. It's a question we need to ask of every argument we hear before we come to the content. How is the word being used here? Is it being ignored totally or in part? Is it being used to justify something that is contrary to the other parts in the Bible? Is it the first port of call, or is it the bit you go to at the end of your con- after you've already given your conclusion? Is it being used to glorify Christ and encourage faith and a love for him, an ever-increasing delight in him, or is it being used to rationalise the desires of the human heart? That's what we have now, isn't it? This is one of, the, one of the greatest faults of the Church of England is its failure to do this. One of the greatest faults of the Church of England is its failure to silence false teaching and controversies. It's not a mistake that Stonewall make. When Stonewall hears something that runs contrary to their creed, they make sure it is silenced, often in quite an unmerciful way. Doctrinal discipline is commanded, it is necessary and it is essential and it must be done in love because without it people will miss out on the love of Christ. It must be done for the sake of the bride of Christ. What was the first sin of Adam? Anyone? The first sin of Adam. He's there in the garden, what's the first sin of Adam? His failure to correct his wife's false teaching. 
He doesn't stop his wife and say, no, that's not right. What was Jesus' first port of call in discussing any theological issue with great theologians and teachers of the day? What does he say all the time? Have you not read? Are you, in er- are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? He does it properly. Adam does it badly. Say, so listen, a badge might be applied to you as a Christian or to the church. People might say, it's a bit narrow there. It's like being in a straitjacket. By contrast, the church over there, it's a very broad church. They're very open-minded there. Listen, when it comes to what songs we sing, when it comes to how we set up worship, when it comes to how you do evangelism and what emphasis you place on creativity and who you welcome through the door, yes, that's a bad thing being narrow-minded. It's a bad thing being in a straitjacket. And I'm sure we've got lots of work to do on that here. But when it comes to teaching and doctrine, that is a badge of honour. And it means that we are doing our job. When it comes to the gospel of Christ, the love of God, of course we would silence false teaching. Because there is nothing more precious. We do that for the sake of love, love of Christ for one another and that grace, mercy and peace that we prayed for, that Paul's praying for us and Timothy. So a gathering of Christians should be broad in social spectrum and in gifts and in style of worship. It's the uniting of all nations under Jesus. But we should be as one foundation and one pillar when it comes to the truth. A gathering of God's people do not tolerate false teaching but silence it. To allow such teaching to exist is to allow the erosion of the pillar and the foundation of truth with disastrous consequences. Now look, if you're, you're new here or you're young tonight, by the Bible's own omission, it's telling you that there will be lots of different takes on Christianity and what the Bible says. So if you think, you look around, you think there's loads of different takes on this Christianity, that's normal. The question is, is how do you know that this isn't the cult of a person How do you know that what you're being told about here about Jesus is really true? You've got to check every answer you were given against the apostolic word, the law against the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Check what Jesus says in here. And and where where what you are hearing is wrong, for the love of God, correct it. Otherwise you and others will miss out on the true love of Christ. Maybe you've been a believer for some time. I hope that you are wary of new ideas that have never been thought of. I hope that you are conservative in the way you do theology, careful to examine our motives when we do. Do I want this teaching that I'm seeing in the Bible to be true for the glory of God or for myself? New ideas. I had a bloke, a mate at college who always used to say, "Mm, that's quite a new idea. I can't think of anywhere in history someone's had that idea. That makes me worry. That's a good instinct. That's a very good instinct. And so actually expect to be challenged if you're an older believer. Expect to be challenged and corrected. And even to want to preach something else. You know, confessions of a preacher. I had to preach in front of a bunch of scouts this afternoon. And I tell you, I did not want to preach about sin. I didn't want to do it. But I must do it if they're to hear of the love of Christ. That compels me. And I want people in that room, if I don't do it, to say, Ed, that wasn't proper. You missed that. I hope you will do that for me. 
When you encounter false teaching and controversies, look, here's the simple way. When you hear false teaching, hear it, say it, stop it. Okay? Hear it, say it, stop it. That's what we do. Hear it, so listen. Be active in listening. It's out there and it's circulating around. It's not wise just to accept. And then listen to the person who's saying it. Ask them questions. Pray and identify the issue. Don't be quick on your Twitter to go, oh, that was rubbish. Listen. Pray and identify the issue. Check it against the Bible. Then say it. Say something. Write a letter. Write a letter to our bishops. Write a letter to the person. Write something privately on Twitter to them, saying, look, I'm not sure that this is right. Where in the Bible do you go for this? Can you talk me through this? Talk it through with the individual where possible, and where possible, have the Bible open. That's the railroad that we're sitting on, isn't it? And then finally stop it. Call to repentance and to stop. You've got to say stop it. It's deeply uncomfortable for Brits, isn't it? But we do, we're commanded here to say stop it. Because otherwise the love of Christ disappears. And where there is no stopping or repenting, then we exercise church discipline, which means time out for the Lord's Supper and communion, time out with people with God of people, but still unrepentant after that, then we have nothing to do with them. Other than we pray for them deeply. Listen, I think we've got to do this in our own hearts as well. If you're here, someone here today, you're really suffering at the minute. Honestly, the false teaching that I tell myself when I'm suffering, God's not big enough, I'm not good enough, all this suffering means God doesn't care or isn't in control. You've got to hear what you're saying yourself. And you've got to say that actually that's not right. And then you've got to stop it. You're not on your own in that. You do that with a church family, don't you? And that's the most loving thing someone can do to you, is to listen to you carefully and empathically and with great sadness and lament, but to gently correct and to say, hang on a minute, I'm not sure that God does promise that. I think he really is in control of all things. Allow others to say that to us when we're suffering. Allow them to call us to repentance, to believe the true word of God and the gospel promises, so that we might have grace mercy and peace and the love of Christ Jesus isn't that brilliant that we even though we fall in that whole list of sinners actually the sound doctrine at the end verse 10 that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to Paul is to say that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that there is an eternity to come where we will be as one Washed in white, holding palms, praising Jesus before his throne. And the only way we're going to get there is if the Lord keeps us that pillar and foundation of truth. So let's pray we would do that, even though it be costly in the short term. Not doing it doesn't bear thinking about. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you would choose to take people like us, all of us here in the room, who are unholy, were unreligious, all of us who were wished their fathers and mothers dead at some point, all of us who are sexually immorality, sexually immoral, Lord, all of us who have done terrible things. And Lord, it is your will to take us and to redeem us in Christ by his love so that we might be this pillar and foundation of truth 
And Lord, we're sorry for the times where we think it's loving, Lord, to allow the gospel to be watered down or to be tucked away or to be skewed in some difficult way. And Lord, how we love to protect our own dignity or our own status rather than saying, hang on a minute, would we want to say? So I pray that you would help us even now as we are confronted by our own sin, by difficulties in our denomination, and Lord, by all the things that will inevitably come, that we would, out of love, silence false teaching and controversy so that your love might abound amongst us. Amen.